Starting out, we're in Hebrews 11. This morning we're looking at verses 11 and 12, continuing to study the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11 is the great celebration of the heroes of the faith down through the centuries. And today we're looking at Abraham's faith. What do you do when... And how do you generate faith when the circumstances around you seem impossibly hopeless? How do you continue to trust in the promises of God and walk by faith as a Christian when uh, you look at the things arrayed against you and you say, there's no way. This is going to take a miracle for God to fulfill His promises and come through in this particular situation. Uh, Have you ever been at a place on your Christian journey with Christ, walking the road of faith, and suddenly the road of faith seems to lead directly to the base of a large brick wall that extends in either direction as far as you can see? And and you go, wait a minute, I thought this is where I was supposed to go. How do I keep going? How can God uh, do this? Uh, how, How can I overcome this obstacle Will God really fulfill His promises? Maybe you've even reached a point or toyed with in your mind of simply walking away from your faith and saying, you know, forget it. There's no way. And I'm just going to pack it in. I've done enough. I need to just find a different path or a different road. How do we continue to generate faith in those circumstances? Well, this morning we come to Abraham again. We saw him last Sunday when we started studying his life in verses 8 through 10. Today we look at him again, and, and what we see in the life of Abraham is that he was a man who experienced an acute testing of his faith that was not only an acute, difficult test, but a test that extended over several years, in fact, perhaps even several decades. So not only was he in a painful, excruciating test where God had given him a promise that seemed absolutely impossible. That there was no way it could come to pass. God gave him this promise, and Abraham had to wait by faith and trust God's promise that seemed crazy, and he had to do it over an extended period of many years. That's why he's the great man of faith in the Old Testament, because his entire life is an extended, acute test of faith in many ways. And what we see in Abraham's life, and we're going to see this morning, is that the way he He fostered his faith. The way he continued to generate faith in God through that test wasn't by looking into himself to try to gym up some faith. You know, you don't get faith by kind of rubbing your temples and saying, okay, I'm going to believe, believe, believe. Here we go, here we go. That's not how it works. It's not believing something in yourself. Nor is it figuring out how to manipulate your circumstances. That's not how you generate faith. Okay, if I tweak that and I tweak that, we can solve the problem here. We get faith by looking not inwards, but upwards to God. Abraham extended his faith by focusing on the faithfulness of who God is. And it's because of God's faithfulness, because Abraham knew that God was a great God who could fulfill his promises, that Abraham was able to continue trusting this promise that God had given him. And by the way, what was the promise that God gave to Abraham? Well, God promised Abraham that Abraham would have a son. Look at our text. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. It says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father 
because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So here we have the summary of this promise. God promised Abraham that he would have a son, even though it seemed impossible given the physical circumstances. Now, if some of you are using an English translation of the Bible other than the New International Version, which is what's in the Pew Bible, uh, your, your translation may say, by faith, Sarah was able to conceive a child. And so this is actually a very tricky verse in Greek to translate with, and without getting into the, the grammar of it and the, the structure. It, it, it's one of those tenuous verses. I, I think in this case um, that the, the newer national version actually has the right translation. I, w- I would side with saying by faith Abraham and then putting Sarah in as a pr- parenthetical comment. But like I said, uh, regardless, the point is the same. There was a miraculous conception of a child. That's the point. That God gave power to this couple that shouldn't have been able to have a child. Uh, if you look um, again in the text, look at, look at the obstacles. Abraham was past age. He, he was aged. And, and you know, I don't want to get into, the, again, the Greek and the grammar, but it, essentially what it's saying is that he was impotent. He was old and he was unable to have children anymore. And Sarah was barren. She had been infertile her whole life. She had never been able to have kids. And now they were well advanced in years and God gave them this promise. And Abraham was able to persevere. So there you go. Impossible situation. Older couple, never been able to have kids their whole life. And now they're well advanced in years and God's given them this promise that he's going to have a son. How did Abraham press on in faith? I mean, that, that just seems like you know a dream that God would do that. But Abraham continued to believe. How did he get his faith? Look at verse 11. He considered him faithful who had made the promise. He didn't look at something into himself or something in the circumstances. He said if God made the promise, God is faithful, God can do it. And so his faith came from God's faithfulness, from a consideration of God's faithfulness. And so the result, verse 12, so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. From one came an innumerable host. This amazing work of God. Let's, um, let's go back and read the original story in Genesis. That's what we've been doing here. It's kind of going back into the original uh, text. So put a bookmark here. We'll come back to it in Hebrews 11. But let's turn over to Genesis chapter 12. And let's just kind of track this promise that God gave to Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Genesis 12:1, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And then here's the great promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see that in the beginning of verse 2? I will make you into a great nation. Way back when God first called Abraham to leave his home, even before he got to Cana, he was promising him, you're going to go to this land and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. There's going to be so many descendants, it's going to be a whole people group that will be known on the face of the earth. A whole nation will descend from you. Not just some family genealogy, 
but people will look to you as the father of a nation. I mean, what a huge promise. And of course, this is a huge promise because his wife couldn't have children up to that point. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 30, we're told Sarah was barren. She had no children. So Abraham goes with this promise. If you look at uh, Genesis 12:6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. So he's now in Cana. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So again, you're going to have offspring. I'm going to give him this land. But the promise doesn't end there. It keeps being reiterated. The next big instance of the promise is in chapter 15. So let's just jump over to chapter 15. This is sort of a major moment where God reconfirms His promise to Abraham. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. So God says, Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. I'm your reward. I'm going to provide for you. I am your provision. I am your protection. I am everything you need, Abraham. Don't be afraid. I am your God. You are my man. I'm standing behind you. But look what Abraham says, verse 2. Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Because God hadn't given him children according to the laws of the customs of the land in those days, your sort of chief servant, so some chief butler or something, is going to be the guy who gets the entire tribe and all of Abraham's inheritance because he doesn't have any offspring. Now, infertility is an extremely painful experience, and, and people experience it today. But back in those times, it was sort of doubly painful because not only was it just painful because you know, a couple would want a child, but it was painful because it was seen as, as a curse of God, really. You know, the basic blessing in an agrarian culture is to have sons because otherwise, you know, how are you going to do the fields and the farm and take care of things? And, and, and who's going to carry on the family lineage? So there's, there's a great sense of God's blessing in that. It, it was even probably even stronger than we would associate with it today. <clears throat> so basically, Abraham's saying to God, Look, you say you're my portion. You say you're my reward. You haven't even given me the one blessing that's kind of the most basic blessing you could give people that they would expect from you, God. So if you're so great, why, why haven't you given me this one thing? Where's the blessing? So verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. This butler guy, whoever he is, don't worry about it. He's not going to get your stuff. He's not your heir. But a son coming from your own body, will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. You know, just imagine this moment of him looking out at the stars and seeing the Milky Way in the, at, at night, seeing all of them out there, and God saying, this is how many great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren you're going to have. So many, You can't even count them. Try to count the stars. Abraham, can you do it? No. That's how many. I'm going to bless you so greatly with offspring. And verse 6 is so key. One of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in the promise of God. How? 
because he believed the Lord. Notice that. He believed who God was. In other words, you can just imagine him out there under the stars, looking up at the stars and, and thinking, you know, if God could make all these stars, God can fulfill His promise. Abraham found faith to keep trusting God, not by looking into himself, but by thinking about what God could do. He, he let his mind and his heart and his vision be filled up with the greatness and the power and the sovereignty of God. And it was like, God can do this. He believed God. Not even the promise of God, just who God was and what God had said. And because of that, then this is very important, God credited it to him as righteousness. So God said to Abram, you are acceptable to me. I grant righteousness. You see that language of crediting it to him? You know, that's how we become righteous and acceptable in God's sight. How can a mere human being become connected to God and forgiven by God? And the answer is through faith. God has to credit our moral bank account with righteousness. We can't earn up enough good deeds and religiosity in order to kind of make ourselves wealthy enough religiously to be acceptable to God. Um, you know, you don't, you don't become acceptable to God by being a good Baptist or being a good Catholic or being a good Episcopalian or being a good uh, tree-hugging, eco-loving recycler, you know. <laughs> Whatever the system of morality is that a particular culture may create, because it's all the same. We, we don't create a religion and then do good at it and somehow earn money into our moral bank account before God and then sort of say, hey God, this is enough money to buy my ticket to heaven. That's not how it works. We're, we're morally bankrupt before God. Not just bankrupt, we're in the hole like an infinite amount. We owe God an infinite debt of worship and glory that we could never repay. But to think that Christ has died for us and Christ's righteousness becomes ours, God does like a wire transfer from Christ to us. That's what it means to be saved by faith. It means that I look and I say, God, I believe that You can do what I can't do. I believe You can do the impossible. You could save a sinner like me. I can't do it. But You have the righteousness that You can give to me. And I just open my hands of faith and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the basic prayer of faith and salvation. So Abraham believed God. And then there's another promise. I just want to show you one more. Look at chapter 18. So now we're fast-forwarding again. Abraham is continuing to have faith in this ridiculous promise of a child, even though he's old, even though his wife has never been able to have kids. He's still holding on to this specific promise. Why? Because he's looking to who God is. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. This is a funny story where God, I don't know how, but somehow just appears to Abraham as kind of a traveler along the road, along with two other angels who are going with him. It says in chapter 18, verse 1, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. So here we see Abraham's virtue of hospitality, a very critical virtue in the ancient world. So the text is showing what a virtuous, godly man he was, that he who was so great and so rich and powerful would be such a humble host to just some three guys walking down the road. 
All right. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into his tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of flour and knead it and bake some bread. Don't you love it when your husbands pull that on you, ladies? <laughs> I, I, I didn't ask you, but I invited some guys over, and um, could, could you? Right. Verse 7, Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree, just waiting to serve them. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now it's getting real specific. You're going to have a son. It's within the year. It's coming from Sarah. All right? Not through Hagar or anyone else, through Sarah. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old. And well advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. How old were they? Well, we're told back in chapter 17, verse 17, that Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. So menopause is way in the rearview mirror. (laughs) She's old. He's really old. You know, you thought the octomom having eight babies was amazing. How about the nonagenarian mom? It's ridiculous. So verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself and she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? This is totally ridiculous. You know, how could God possibly keep this promise? It just is, it's so ludicrous. You know, even the, the National Enquirer wouldn't pick this one up. I mean, it's so far out. And I love it. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) By the way, Isaac, her son, what does Isaac mean? He laughs. So we have some of the etymology there of his name. Verse 14 is the key verse in this text. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the question. That is the question that when we find ourselves at the brick wall of impossibility with the promises of God leading directly toward it, this is the question we have to ask. The question is not, how am I going to do this? The question is not, okay, how can I work this? I'm going to figure this out, you know. I'm, I'm suave. I'm, I'm savvy. I'm going, to, I'm going to calculate a way around this situation. The question we have to ask in impossible situations is, is anything too hard for the Lord? The point is to look to who God is and to say, can God do this? If God's promised X, can God do it? And when we find our faith flagging and we feel like giving up and saying, this is, this is silly, we have to renew our faith by looking at God, not again by sort of rubbing our temples and convincing ourselves that we're going to have faith. It doesn't happen that way. Faith is something that God gives. It's a gift. And we get it by meditating on the greatness and faithfulness of God. I love this quote from George Mueller, the great uh, 18th century, or rather 19th century man of faith who started an orphanage on faith. 
He said, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Reminds me of another miraculous birth story in the Bible, in the New Testament. This was miraculous not because the the lady was old, but because she was very young. In fact, she was unmarried. In fact, she was a virgin. And the angel appeared to her and said, Mary, you're going to have a child. She said, how can this be? I'm I'm a virgin. I'm unmarried. I've never been with a man. How can I have a baby? And the angel said, is anything impossible for God? Nothing's impossible for God. Almost the same language. This idea that God can do anything. Think about who God is, Mary. Not who you are or what the situation is. If God has promised it, He can accomplish it. So what we need to to bolster our faith when we feel ourselves losing it is we need a a greater vision of God's faithfulness and greatness and power. I like what J. Gresham Machen, the uh, 20th century New Testament scholar, said. He said, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust Him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. Isn't that great? The greater our progress in theology, in other words, and theology is just the study and knowledge of God. The, great, the more we know who God is, the more, the more deep and you know, complex we become in our theology, the more childlike will be our faith. Because we'll see who God is and we'll say, of course God can do what He says He can do. So we have these promises of God just like Abraham had promises. We worship the same God as Abraham worshipped. He is just as able to do anything today as He was back then. He doesn't change. God has given us promises just like He gave promises to Abraham. And we have to cling to those promises by faith. You know, there's so many promises of God we could talk about as examples of that. Let me just give you two promises of God that I have found particularly helpful in my own spiritual life that I just kind of keep coming back to. One is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident in this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love that promise. <laughs> Some days, you know, as a Christian, you look at your own life, you see how we fall, we, we, we stumble in our Christian life, we don't live up to our profession. Sometimes we, we fall a long ways and we're like, you know, why do I try? God, you should just give up on me. I've given up on myself. I'm not going to keep pressing on in my faith. And the promise of God comes. God began the work. God will finish the work. And I look sometimes in my situation, I'm like, you can. Yeah, I'm finished. I'm finished. God's like, no, I'm not finished. And I'm going to carry it on. And so how do you keep going when you're faced with failure and disappointment in the Christian life? You look at God and see that He can can save and He can transform lives. Another promise of God that's really sustained me through uh, different circumstances is the one that many of you know in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, uh, that says, we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. In all things, in all circumstances, God is working for my ultimate good if I'm a follower of Christ. So no matter what I'm going through, no matter how messed up and broken the situation might be, God is somehow going to bring a blessing ultimately in the end through the circumstances for me as a Christian. And sometimes that's hard to believe. You know? I mean, when the thing you're going through is is sickness or job loss or a a rebellious child or a major blow-up or like four of those things happening at once, which sometimes happens. You just think, God, 
There's no way. This is just too broken. I'm living in a rubble heap of a life. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and burned, Nehemiah. You can't build anything out of this. That God says, I can bring good out of evil. So we have to look to Him. And we say, you know, the greatest good in the universe was brought through the greatest moment of evil. Through the cross of Jesus, God brought the greatest blessing possible. Through the greatest evil came the greatest blessing. So I look at who God is and what God has done and I say, God can do it again even in my circumstance. I can trust His promises. So we worship the God of Abraham. We walk by faith like Abraham did. We trust promises like Abraham did. But you know, I was thinking about this text and uh, as I was studying it this, this week, something else came to me. And, and as I thought about this more, I got really fired up. This is the thing I've just been dying to tell you. So I've been working my way to this. Not only do we worship the same God of Abraham, not only do we walk by faith like Abraham, not only do we trust promises like Abraham, but we specifically trust and apply to ourselves today this very promise that God gave Abraham. In other words, the promise that God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago directly applies to us today. Maybe you're going like, huh? Are you saying I'm going to have a kid? (laughs) Some of you elderly couples out there fidgeting nervously. No, that's not what it means. That was the promise to Abraham for Isaac. All right. God may bless the children, He may not, but that was promised for Abraham. Nor does the promise apply to us to make a great nation, because that was done to the people of Israel. Right? You, you know the story. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. So from him came the great nation. So that was that that doesn't apply to us, you know, except that we look back and we see that God fulfilled his promise by making a great nation. So, so how does this apply to us? Well, it's the third phase of the promise, which is that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. Go back to Genesis 12. Let's check it out. Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. Let's look at that inaugural promise again. To Abraham, God says, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth. In other words, all nations, all people groups, all all gatherings of people with their different cultures and languages, all peoples will be blessed through you. So the promise to Abraham is not just that he'll have an Isaac and not just that out of Isaac will come an Israel. But that out of that, God will bring a blessing to all the nations on the earth, which would include us. Or look at uh, Genesis chapter 17. Here's another one of those promise passages. We skipped over this one, but I know he's going to come back to it. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I love that. I'm God Almighty. Remember who I am. Focus on me. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. 
So he's, he's already ma- promised Abraham, covenanted with him, he's going to give him any offspring. God's like, I'm just here for a confirmation check. Just to remind you, I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do. You, you thought I'd been gone a long time, it's not going to happen. Don't worry, I'm reconfirming this is still going to happen. So Abraham fell face down. God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Not just a great nation. Do you get that? Many nations, plural. So Abraham will have a son. He will have a nation come from that son. But he will become the father of many nations. So, so there's, there's a broader scope even beyond Israel. Even beyond the Jews. Then he's changes his name, verse 5, to reflect this promise. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. Abram, uh, the Hebrew word is av, which means father. Ram or rum means to be exalted. So, so it's exalted father is Avram. But Avraham means father of many nations. So God's like, I'm, I'm so certain that I'm going to do this. I'm changing your name. Forget Abram, that's old. You change the business cards, you've got to change the yellow book pages. You're Abraham now, you got it? Father of many nations. So the promise to Abraham is that through him, all nations would receive a blessing. Now how did that come to pass? How does that prophecy get fulfilled? How does that promise to Abraham get fulfilled? And as we look to the pages of the New Testament... The, the apostles go at great lengths to show us that it is through Jesus Christ that God fulfills this promise to Abraham. That out of Jesus, the true seed of Abraham, as we find out in Galatians chapter 3, that through Him, the blessing of Abraham of faith and righteousness is going to come to all the nations on earth. That, that through Jesus, who in many ways is in a sense the summation of Israel. You know, you look at Israel's history, its institutions. I don't want to get too deep into this, but, but in many ways, Jesus is kind of true Israel. He summarizes and fulfills everything that we had hoped for Israel in the Old Testament. He, he, he kind of sums it up in Himself. He sums up the temple. He sums up the sacrificial system. He fulfills the law. He's everything. It all points to Him. And so through Him and His death on the cross... There's a blessing now in the gospel that goes out to the whole world. So he rises from the dead and he tells his disciples, take the gospel to the nations. Because now the third phase of the promise of Abraham begins with the coming of Christ. And so the nations are blessed in what way? They can be forgiven and they can be righteous like Abraham through faith. Even the Gentiles, like most, I'm assuming most people here are Gentiles, maybe a few of you are Jewish, you grew up Jewish. But the rest of us who are Gentiles from the nations, God has brought a blessing to us through Christ. We've been engrafted into Abraham's family. Let me prove all that to you rather than just asserting it. You need to see this. Turn, one more passage, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It's on page 1115 in your pew Bible. This is the Apostle Paul reflecting back on Abraham in light of the cross. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. I wish you had time to preach all of Romans 4. It's so good. We'll just go to verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to 
all Abraham's offspring. Well, who are all Abraham's offspring? Not only to those who are of the law, which means what? Israel, the Jews. But also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. The Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. He is the Father of us all. As it is written, quotation from Genesis 17, I have made you a father of many nations. So that promise is fulfilled in the, in the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles into Christ through faith in Jesus. He is our Father, our Father in the sight of God in whom He believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Does anyone, uh, anyone ever go to like vacation Bible school or Sunday school or something as a kid and you learn this little song? Father Abraham had many sons. You guys know that song? Many sons had Father Abraham. And then this, this line that always confused me as a kid. And I am one of them and so are you. And I was like, what does that mean? I, it's not, Abraham's not my father. What do, you, what do you mean, I am one of his sons and so are you? And What is it talking about? This is what it's talking about. That through faith in Christ, we become the children of Abraham through faith. We become part of the lineage of faith, of those who have been declared righteous before God because we put our faith, and now as those on this side of the cross, we put our faith in Christ specifically. Notice... Look at the next verses. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. How did he do it? How did he keep his faith strong? How did he not waver? Well, it tells us, because he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, here we go, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. There it is again. That the way he generated faith wasn't by generating it at all, but just by looking at God and seeing that God could provide what God had promised, that God was able to do anything that God says. So it was a vision of God's faithfulness that evoked a response of faith in him. This is why, verse 22, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now get this. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Do you see that? So through faith in Christ... By exercising the same kind of faith that Abraham had, except in this time the promise isn't for a descendant, but the promise is Jesus and His forgiveness. By coming to God and saying, I can't save myself. I can't cobble together enough righteousness to make me pleasing to You, God. I just come with open hands and say, by faith I believe Christ died for me. So by faith, righteousness is credited to our account before God. Not our own, but Christ's righteousness for us. And so we share in the very same faith as Abraham. In other words, the promise to Abraham for a blessing to the nations is happening today. As the Gospel goes out and the promise of righteousness through faith is preached to all the nations. And this is why, people, I I have hope and confidence for the success of the Gospel in New England. 
Because the last time I checked, New England was part of the nations. We're kind of a nation unto ourselves, but we're still there. And the last time I checked, our Lord Jesus has not returned. Therefore, the blessing of Abraham is still available to the nations. And until Christ returns, we have to expect that the gospel will go forward and have success in the world. And so because of this promise made 4,000 years ago, and because of its fulfillment uh, in Christ and and sort of uh, culmination in Christ, I I believe that the gospel is going into all the nations. It is being fulfilled today. In other words, our salvation stands in a direct historical connection and succession to Christ and to the gospel today. That, that the fact that we are Christians, if you are a follower of Christ, is because this promised blessing to the nations has reached you. And so I have confidence for New England. God can reach New England. He has a blessing for the nations. Now, when you look around at our circumstances, like Abraham saying, how old am I again? How old is my wife? You know, if we, if we kind of think about it that way and we look at New England, forget about it. <laughs> right? If you look at New England with that lens, no, no way. You look at all the surveys, Barna and Gallup, and they do all their polls, and they, some of the things they poll are religious matters, and they do surveys of New England states, and, you know, we're always at, like, the bottom of all the surveys of where the faith is in the country, and, you know, whatever metric they use, whether they ask questions like, do you believe in God, or whether they ask questions like, do you go to church, you, you know, we have the lowest church attendance, you know, all these kinds of things. We're always at the bottom. Or you look at our, our state and some of the, the things we've put into law and some of the immorality that, that we've kind of codified as acceptable. I mean, like, you know, you go, what's going on here? You don't have to look that far. Just talk to your friends and neighbors. And try to talk to them about Christ. It, it's just, it's a different world here. You know, people go down south and they're like, it was amazing. People are like praying at dinner and saying grace and people got their Bibles out in Starbucks and it's just a different world. You know, you come here and if you were to bring your Bible to a Starbucks and read it, I mean, you'd feel like you're starting a revolution or something right there in Starbucks. Um, it's just a different place. And, and I've tried to think about, you know, the, sort of the New England ethos. And, it, and I've, I think I've talked about this before, but I think there are three kind of um, elements, three, sort of three major components to it. One component is a nominal Christianity where... You know, everyone would call themselves a good Christian or whatever, but it doesn't really mean anything. They don't actually go to church. They don't actually believe the stuff. It's just part of the family heritage. The second component is secularism. I think the, the, the secularization is really the worldview of many people around us. They look, there's no ultimate truth. You just kind of do your best and live your life and, you know, do what you want to do. And then the third component is, is kind of an intellectual hubris. That because we have so many universities and because we have so many good hospitals, sort of like osmotically, we're all smarter than the rest of the world. And therefore, we're all smarter than Jesus and we don't need God. So, so you know, you put all that together and, and that's this kind of atmosphere that we live in. And you look at that and you think, well, what, what's the point? What's the point? You know, why would you go out and risk giving the gospel to anybody? What, talk about beating your head against the wall. Nothing's going to come of that. Why would we even think about adding on an addition to our church? Do we think there actually could be more people that could be saved and come to faith and join us in worship? You know, we just need to hedge our bets. We need to just stop now, close the doors, be thankful for the people we got, you know, cash out of the game, 
It's just hunker down. Because we're just lucky we have what we have. Let alone the idea of planting new churches. You don't plant new churches in New England. They did that once. It was called the Puritans. They planted the churches. Those buildings are still here. And if you go to church, you go to those, right? Um, we don't start new churches. And so you look at the, th- that way, and, and you say, it's, it's like Sarah, you know? The, the womb is barren. It's like Abraham. It's too old. It's, it's past age. It's all past here in New England. We had a time of blessing. It's past, like Abraham. And we think, God can't do this. But I love chapter 4, verse 17 of Romans, that God who gives life to the dead calls things that are not as though they were. That God is sovereign. He has promised to bless the nations. And so I hold forth hope that God can still do a work here in New England. Do you believe the circumstances or do you believe God? That is the choice that we face, is it not? In terms of living our Christian lives here. Do we believe that God can? People, your spouse is not beyond the power of God to save. Your rebellious child is not beyond the power of God to redeem. If God's Holy Spirit is released to save your atheistic, obnoxious, swearing boss, He's going to just roll over. Because when God moves, He moves. And nothing can stop His power. And so our job is just to be faithful. Whether we even see God's blessing in our lifetime is irrelevant. Our job is to pray, to be faithful, like Abraham, to walk by faith and believe that God will fulfill His promise to bless the nations. Now, of course, it's much more than New England, isn't it? I keep talking about New England because that's where we are. That's our immediate context. But this is the nations, plural. God has, God's going to bring a blessing to Iran. God's going to bring a blessing to Gaza. I'm looking for the blessing of the Gospel to penetrate North Korea. I'm looking for the blessing of God to go through Iceland. I mean, why, why do we you know, think that... You know, we, I think sometimes we view the world through the lens of CNN and Fox News. And, and we kind of get suckered into this politicized human way of seeing reality. And we don't look at the world through God's lens, which is Jesus is the King of Boston. Jesus is the king of Iran. I don't care who gets elected there. He's the king. He's going he's gonna to do his work. So, I mean, that's why we, we set aside a quarter of our budget in the church to send out missionaries. You think that's like a fool's errand, but we believe that God has a blessing for the nations. I was talking to a girl after the second service. She just happened to be here, you know, just happened to be here. And uh, she's from Ohio, and she was visiting her friend who just got engaged. And she's going to go as a missionary to Egypt. And she's going to plant a church there. And I'm like, do they know you're coming to plant a church? She said, no. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Her heart is to go to get used to speaking Arabic, to get used to the culture, and to go into Gaza and plant churches there. It's just like, what? (laughs) Why would you do that? She believes in the blessing for the nations. True. It's the promise of Abraham. Missions is not just a little committee in our church that does a, a banquet. It is the overflow of the whole promise of God through the gospel to the world. So that's our hope. She was telling me that in Iran, she has friends that she knows who are doing this kind of undercover church planting in Iran. 
She said that, that the church is just flourishing there, that it's one of the fastest growing places for the churches, according to the things that she's seen. She was t- I, don't, I, I don't know how she got this information. I need to check it out. But she was just telling me, she says she knows a church planter in Iran who, who they, they had to stop evangelism because the people were coming to faith so fast that no one was discipling them. There was no one to help the new believers get established. So they kind of said, let's stop evangelism. Wow. Can you imagine? Stop evangelism? Wow. That's amazing. Nothing can stop God. Nothing can stop His purposes in the world. I have like 25 more minutes of things to talk about, but I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to cut this sermon short. Let me close by telling you the story of a Massachusetts boy who went to a faraway land. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was born in 1788 uh, up on the North Shore. His dad was a congregational minister. His dad was a believer. His mom was. Faith didn't take with him. His mom wept for him and prayed for him, and he didn't become... He actually uh, went off to college, and deism was fashionable at the time he became a deist. Uh, and you know, sort of the belief that God created the world but then kind of went on vacation and left us all here. And it doesn't really matter what you do because God's not really involved. So, so, so he became a deist. And there, there was this really brilliant student at college who convinced him of deism. And so he, uh, he became a deist and sort of went to live his wild life. Well, when he was 20 years old, he was traveling and stayed at a, a boarding house for the night. They didn't have motels, but, you know, whatever it is, they stayed in bed and breakfast kind of thing. And he was in this room, and apparently there was a man in the room next to him dying. The guy was going through the death throes. He was screaming and moaning all night. So this guy, you know, Judson had to sit there and listen to some guy dying all night in the next room. And all night he kept having these thoughts like, like, I wonder if that man knows Christ. I wonder if that man is facing eternity with God, if he has peace with God, or if he hasn't made peace with Christ, if he's hanging over the, the pit of hell. And then he would be like, oh, what am I thinking? I don't believe these things, you know? This is ridiculous. What, what, you know, what if my friend from, you know, my deist friend who converted me to deism heard me thinking these things? You know, he was just kind of like, oh, but then he would start thinking again. And, and so he'd listen to this guy dying all night, and he couldn't help but have these thoughts. And finally the guy died that night. In the morning... You know, it was kind of sober. So he, he asked the, the proprietor, you know, who was that, by the way? It was the guy who led him to deism in college. He was in the next room dying. And it just rocked him. It rocked him. And he was like, I've got to find Christ. I need forgiveness for my soul. And he became a Christian. He almost immediately joined seminary. He became the leader of the, the modern missions movement. And just kind of, there's a lot of other things that took place. Fast forward, he's with his wife. He's on a boat to India finally being a missionary sent out by churches up in Peabody and Salem, and uh, was going to India, got there. The, the East India Company turned him away. They said, no, no, we don't want this here. So he didn't know where to go. So he went to next door. He went out to Burma, landed in Rangoon. Zero Christians in Burma. You know, he gets there. He starts to minister for six years. Not one person comes to faith. They have a son. Their son dies in Burma. They bury him in Burma under a tree. It's just a, just a difficult situation. After six years, one person comes to faith in Christ and is baptized. Then a handful. Then he's arrested at some point as a, a British spy, even though he isn't. And they throw him in jail for 21 months. He's on death row. He's awaiting execution. You know, it, just imagine a, a 19th century Burmese prison. It's just not where you want to be. <laughs> you know, tied to bamboo and heavy shackles on his legs that, that we're told left physical scars for his whole life. Just intense suffering for 21 months in this jail. And it was while he was in jail, there came this moment 
where he was, there was another prisoner there. And the prisoner, you know, sort of snidely and mockingly said, well, Mr. Judson, Judson, what are the prospects of the conversion of the heathen now? And Judson said, the prospects for the conversion of the heathen are as bright as the promises of God. If God has promised a blessing, it will happen, whether he lives to see it or not. But he was released. He ministered in Burma for about 34 years, finally died. After his death, they did a census of the Burmese population, and uh, they counted over 200,000 followers of Christ. You know, God had a blessing for Burma. That was the blessing he promised to Abraham 4,000 years earlier that is continuing to unfold today. And that blessing is for you, if you will, by faith, extend your heart to Christ, to give up on your own self-righteousness, to abandon your hopes of making yourself acceptable to God, and just come to Him with simple faith and receive the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray.